Every day we have our work, our errands, the things we accomplish throughout the day, the battles we fight out in the world, the things we have to do. And at the end of the day, we gather in our homes. The day closes, we resort to our houses to rest from the day's labor, to be refreshed, to be rejuvenated, to reconnect with one another, to recharge. Like ships coming into the harbor, after being out on the ocean, tossed on the seas, a haven from the storm. And we can be encouraged by being around those that love us and appreciate us and make us feel loved and appreciated. And what a joy it is when we regather at the end of the day and have that kind of environment and atmosphere. Brethren, is your home a haven of peace? Is your home a haven of peace? The definition of haven is a a place of safety or refuge in the physical sense, an inlet providing shelter for ships or boats, a harbor or small port. In fact, the word haven comes from a German word, hafen, and literally means harbor. So is our home, are our homes havens of peace? Whether we have two or three or five or eight people living within our walls, whether they're family members or doormates, roommates, what have you, is it a haven of peace? I suppose it's easier for though there to be peace if you live alone. Um, you don't usually argue with yourself. If you do, that's a different problem. But no matter the inhabitants of our home, it's supposed to be a haven. Are you experiencing a haven of peace? Or perhaps are we experiencing, not experiencing the peace that we should and that we want? Do the torrents and the the storms that we fight all day long continue in the home? Do we allow the media to invade our home every evening? And all of Satan's attitudes of competition and strife and greed and hate. When we honestly look at it, we all can grow in developing our homes of being a haven of peace. Let's turn over to Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. I think we can see that, especially when we take a look at a a parable that Jesus gave. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. It's a familiar parable. It starts out with a conversation that Jesus had with a certain lawyer who stood up and tested him. Verse 25 saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What's your reading of it? So the lawyer answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. 
And Jesus recognized, of course, these are the two great laws. Loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself and, and affirmed that. And he said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you shall live. But you know the rest of the story. The lawyer wasn't quite done yet. He wanted a little more clarification about who really do I have to love. So wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Clearly looking for a loophole. Verse 30, then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, and who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down from uh, down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. Verse 33, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And we won't read the rest of it. You know what he did. He stopped. He treated his wounds. He helped him. He aided him. He took him to an inn. He provided the means for this man to recover and to be come back, back, uh, back whole, to be made whole. Now, take a step back and think, which character do you identify the most with in this story? I think probably it would be the Samaritan, right? Most of us would sort of think of ourselves as the hero in this story. Most of us don't think of ourselves as the thieves. That would be weird. Uh, you know, or... Uh, Maybe some of us might feel like life has beaten us down. Maybe we see ourselves as the victim in this story, I suppose. But most likely, we see ourselves as the hero, as the Samaritan. The one who would stop and save the day. The one who would, who would make a sacrifice to help someone else in need. But let's stop and think for another moment. What was the moral of the story? What was the purpose of the story? Was it not to get the listeners to think a little bit about themselves and look under the surface and examine maybe sometimes we're like the Levite or the priest. You know, they weren't bad people. Probably in the circles that they ran in, they were pretty nice, pretty well respected. In fact, they were Levites and priests. They were good citizens. Uh, they didn't attack this poor soul. They didn't wound him. They didn't take his stuff. They didn't leave him half dead. But they clearly missed an opportunity to help and to serve and to love him. Does that ever happen to us? <clears throat> Are we ever the Levite or the priest? Maybe not all the time, but do we sometimes lose the opportunity to love our neighbor when that's a commandment. I recall a situation I found myself in college. Back when uh, I was in college on the Day of Atonement, we were at services, and uh, there was an elderly lady who uh, was sitting next to me. 
And uh, after the song service, uh, the opening prayer was going on. And suddenly she began to faint and began to fall. And my eyes were closed, but I sort of sensed there was movement. And so out of the corner of my eye, I looked down and, and, and she's falling. And I can still replay it in my mind. It was like it was happening in slow motion. And she was falling and falling and falling. And all I'm doing is watching. And I didn't grab her. And I still think back to this day, why didn't I grab her? In the meantime, there was a man who was across the aisle who leaped across the aisle and grabbed onto her just as she was crumpling to the ground and helped to sort of lighten her fall on the floor. And then we both helped her and and, uh, got her back into her seat. Maybe a blood sugar problem or something that, that had happened. She was okay. But I think back to that moment. Why didn't I intervene? What was it going through in my mind? I wasn't aware. I wasn't alert. I wasn't ready. And I missed an opportunity to love my neighbor. Do we sometimes have that in our families? I think it's helpful for us sometimes to think back and examine missed opportunities so we can catch it the next time. Not that we beat ourselves up, not that we shame ourselves, but that we think about it and think, how could I have done this better when it comes to loving our neighbor? And again, who are our closest neighbors? Those who live under the same roof. Our mate, our children, our parents, our roommates, are we fulfilling Christ's command to love them as ourselves? If we can't love those who are closest to us, how can we possibly love those who are further away? Now, we might say, oh, no, I, I don't agree with that. You know, I, 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 uh, that's not me. Well, take for a moment the phone test. Has this ever happened to you? You've been in a conversation at home with a family member. Maybe things have gotten a little tense. Maybe there's been an argument or maybe a a tense conversation. Or maybe you're trying to corral the kids. You know, maybe they're up on the table and you're thinking they should not be on the table. And, uh, you know, they need to be dealt with. And the phone rings. What happens? You put on your pleasant voice, right? Isn't that what happens? You know, stop hitting your sister. Get down off the table now. Hello? How can I help you? So who are we being nice to? Who are we loving? Now, of course, we need to correct our children if they're on top of the table, and that goes without saying. Sometimes we need to raise our voice. But do we, if we get in a pattern of consistently nagging and criticizing our own family members, and yet we're sweet to the outside world, what signal are we sending to our family? 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2. Paul clearly shows the connection between what we're doing in the home as the first step to loving people in the big Wide world out there. First Timothy chapter 3 
verse 2, he's talking about requirements for a bishop. And he says, in verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. Notice in verse 4, is there any connection with loving our family at home and that then being an expression, or rather how we love others out in the big world is an expression of what we're doing at home. Is there any connection at all? Obviously, Paul said, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, he wasn't talking about how, uh, you know, domineering and commanding his his house, because clearly earlier in the verse he talks about being gentle, being temperate, um, not violent, not quarrelsome. But clearly Paul was saying, look, we've got to start at home. We've got to start at home. If we expect to learn to love the whole world, how are we handling our relationships at home? We all live in houses, buildings, apartments. We often talk about what makes a house a home. What makes a house a home? What makes a home a haven? That's really loving one another. How do we do that? How do we make our homes a place of respect, of love, of care, of support, a haven of peace? Let's talk about that today. Several keys to making our home a haven of peace. Making our home a haven of peace. Number one. Number one, we must encourage outgoing concern. We must encourage outgoing concern. You know, the basic definition of agape love, as we have heard for uh a long, long time is outgoing concern for others. We all need to know that others are interested in us, especially those who are closest to us, that they care about us. And yet, humanly, we can get focused on ourselves. We, you know, human beings are essentially selfish, and yet we are commanded to love our neighbor as ourself. Let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 28. Love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. <clears throat> Ephesians 5 and verse 28, this is breaking into the instruction that Paul is giving to husbands and wives. And husbands and wives are a part of the family at home, so we're going to talk about that just for a moment. He says, verse 28, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body. 
So we as men are supposed to love our wives as ourselves. Now I think this is this goes contrary to nature, and that's why he said it. I think we men are generally less nurturing than the ladies. We take good care of ourselves. And that's why it's good to be in a family. It's good to be in a setting where we have to take care of others. It helps us. helps us to grow. helps us to get our minds off ourselves. We can be pretty, pretty selfish, focus on ourselves sometimes. And it's a wonderful mechanism of learning to get our minds off ourselves. Our ladies do seem to have more greater uh, compassion on others. And men, we can sort of compartmentalize that, can't we? Well, that's why he's telling us that we need to love our wives as our own bodies. Notice what he tells the wives. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church. So the command for wives is don't just follow your own ideas. Don't just follow your own agenda. Don't just follow your own roadmap. But think about what your husband is, how he is leading the family. Think about what the course that he is setting. Think about the goals that he is putting forth. And that's how, that's how our wives can love their husbands by, by supporting and helping and, and being a, a support to him. Verse 33, he sums it up, rather verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And truly, the, the workings of the family and the workings of marriage, especially in our day, is a great mystery. And it's going to be more and more of a mystery to the world. They don't even understand it's male plus female anymore. How could they possibly understand the the true purpose of family and marriage? You know, we have an opportunity to to hold on to these values and grab on to them and keep them and secure them and pass them on. Because this generation that we're living in is rapidly losing any semblance of, of the truth concerning a husband and wife and family. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's turn over to Philippians chapter 2. So in the home, in the home, are we encouraging outgoing concern? Are we modeling it? Are we setting that example? And are we encouraging it? Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. This is a familiar passage in this regard. Paul says, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, you know, if we want love in our families, if we want mercy when we need forgiveness, if we want good fellowship, if we want affection, if we want there to be warmth and closeness, he says, 
having, being like-minded, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Do it this way. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And what's the key? Verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. So really he's saying, don't just love others as yourself, but esteem them even even better than yourself. Verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. You know, society is in direct contradiction to this. What's happening in our world? Even in the home, we are becoming more segmented in our society today, more than ever. It used to be that the TV was the focal point of the living room, right? Now, that had problems in itself, you know. I mean, that wasn't all that great that it was the focal point in the living room, but at least there was one focal point. At least there was one spot. At least there was one place where the family would gather. And then the computer was the focal point. And then multiple computers on the Internet. But now the handheld computer, with all sorts of information coming in, videos, chats, pictures, articles, we get all kinds of information from the whole World, while we become strangers to the family members that are sitting right next to us. My brethren, this ought not be so. The point is to, to look at ourselves and look at ways that we are being caught up in this. You know, just using common sense, we, we've got to make an effort to really continue to reach out to each other and not let these distractions make us become strangers in our own home. You know, one of the best strategies is simply making it a priority to eat together at least one meal a day, turn off the TV, put away the devices, the books, whatever, and talk about the day. Now, of course, you know, our... Our schedules can get complicated. Uh, We lead lead busy lives. But there's something profound about eating together and breaking bread together that has been a part of socialization for centuries and millennia. And even we see in, in Scripture. And how people have learned to be civilized. Where do children learn courtesy? Where do they learn to eat? Properly, not like they were raised by wolves, right? At the table. And where do they learn how to carry on a conversation with other people? At the table. Let's make sure that we are we're using the tools and using the mechanisms that, that, that are available to us, and one is simply eating together. Let's extend this to our church family now. Because we are a household of faith, aren't we? We not only have a physical house, physical home, but we have a spiritual home. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24. And how we are and striving to be reaching out to others and expressing outgoing concern to others. And that's a priority 
in the spiritual home, the spiritual household of faith that we are a part of and that we gather with every Sabbath here and in in congregations all over the world. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24, he says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. We're here to assemble not just to receive information. If it was just about information, then we could just live stream at home. We could all be in our flip-flops and fuzzy slippers and, you know, house coats. Be a whole lot more comfortable. But it's much more than that, isn't it? We are here to interact. We're here to share. We're here to let each other know that we're important and that we think each other is important. We're here to reach out. We're here to stir up love and good works. This is our our spiritual family. We're nourished by being here, and we nourish each other by being here. We have the opportunity every Sabbath day to nourish others. Let's not let that opportunity slip by like the Levite and the priest. Let that opportunity slip by to help that man. You know, we all know we we can get in the habit at church of following the exact same path to our seat, to our table, you know, sitting in the exact same table in the snacks, eating with the exact same people every week, maybe even having the exact same conversation with those people every week. Let's make sure we're mixing it up. Obviously, we, we, we do grow close to certain ones, and that's wonderful. There, there, are some, uh, there's, there are some people we just grow close to and we have deep relationships with, and those are nourishing and those are fantastic, and we need those. But let's continue to make sure we're mixing it up, including others that we, we don't normally perhaps you know, talk to or interact with as much. We have greeters here and, and uh, you know, in most of our congregations around. And they do a wonderful job in being a friendly presence at the door. But we know that greeting and being friendly is, is not just for the greeters, is it? It's not just their job. It's for all of us. Some of us are talkers and some of us are listeners. Some of us enjoy uh, verbalizing more, and we, we do a good job at it. And uh, others enjoy listening more. But maybe whichever end of the spectrum we're on, we need to break out a little bit, get out of our comfort zone. Maybe if we uh, tend to listen more, maybe we need to speak up more. Maybe we need to contribute more to conversations and let other people know what we're thinking, that we are having thoughts, you know. And we can share them. And maybe if we tend to talk more, maybe after four or five minutes, if we realize we're the only person talking, we should be self-aware and think, maybe I should let someone else talk. The point is getting out of our comfort zone and trying something different. This is a great opportunity to be with our spiritual family and a great opportunity to think beyond ourselves. 
And that's what builds a haven. That's what helps a home to become a haven. Number two. Number two, another key. We must develop positive communication patterns. We must develop positive communication patterns. One of the things that that we must do in our homes is to cultivate positive communication. Let's turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. These are all familiar passages. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse verse 1. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, verse 2, Deuteronomy chapter 6, to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. God wants this to be passed on. He wants the way of life to become a way of life and for it to be intergenerational. Therefore hear, O Israel, verse 3, and be careful to observe it that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly. That means have a lot of kids. As the Lord God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. So verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength. Again, which is quoted in the New Testament, the first and and great commandment. And verse 6, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Now we shouldn't assume this means to be lecturing all the time. I don't think that's what his his thought was. That's what his purpose was. But the point is that we're talking a lot. We spend a lot of time conversing, sharing conversation with each other. And again, in our busy world, this is more and more of a challenge, and it's not going to get easier. It's going to be more and more of a challenge. But we must not just go along with the tide. We must focus on communication in our family. Keeping lines of communication opens because that produces opportunities to pass on the truth. And, of course, that's what he he said here. Talk about God's way. Talk about his laws. Talk about his principles. Talk about why it works. Talk about our experiences in our life, what God has done for us and what he's going to do for his people in the future. But you know, as well as I do, communication sometimes breaks down in times of stress, doesn't it? It's all well and good when when things are going well. But when it's tested, then patterns can can break down and, and tempers can flare And emotions run high and the volume rises. And we have to think, how do we handle times of stress in our homes? Nobody likes stressful times. Nobody likes conflict. 
But there are positive ways of dealing with it instead of negative. In an article by a man named Jim Burns, a writer who who, uh, writes articles and gives talks to mainstream Christian groups about parenting, has a lot of good advice. He gives some interesting insights in an article entitled, Keeping the Communication Lines Open. He says, when I speak at parenting conferences, I usually ask parents how many of them are enjoying good communication with their teenagers. He says, how is the atmosphere in your home? If it needs some work, no problem. You're in good company with the majority of parents of teens. Far too often, the atmosphere in the home is driven by the teen when, in fact, what is needed is for the parent to take the lead by setting a better atmosphere. This takes discipline and intentionality. If your children see you constantly nagging and criticizing them, don't expect them to enjoy hanging around with you. Teenagers need more models of healthy behavior than criticism. When it comes to good and healthy communication, attitude is everything. He says, I tell parents all the time, you have to take the lead with your attitude. You can't expect your teens to go someplace with their attitude that you haven't gone yourself. Emotionally unhealthy parents produce emotionally unhealthy kids. Interesting advice. Brethren, what are our communication patterns at home? What do we slip into, especially under times of stress? Oftentimes it's, it's way too negative. No, not that we don't. We have to correct sometimes. We have to deal with conflict sometimes. We have to hash it out sometimes. And that's understandable, and, and that's real life. But what is our attitude? What's the pattern? What's the goal? How do we view other family members? And how does it come out? How do we express it? And does it convey love even in times of stress? Going on, he says, when the Bible talks about inheriting the sins of previous generations to the third and fourth generation, it relates to family attitudes as well. If you were raised in an environment filled with put-downs, pessimism, and disapproval, you'll probably have to work harder than others to not repeat the negative pattern or poor attitude with your teenager. But with focus and work, you can be the transitional generation and improve your family's pattern of communication. Interesting. You know, no matter, no matter what negative patterns we might have developed, we might have inherited, we can be different. And that's a powerful insight to spiritual growth. Nobody had perfect parents, but some have had it harder than others. You know, I'm sometimes shocked to hear what some people went through as children, not just being corrected. You know, all kids don't like correction. And I think we all complain about uh, how we were corrected, when we were corrected, that sort of thing. But there are some people who grew up, in some cases, being told they weren't wanted. Being told they weren't good enough. 
being told they were never would never amount to anything. That they're no good. Thank God that was not my experience. And I hope it wasn't yours. I had very supportive parents growing up. But some have had to deal with that. And again, hopefully, I, I hope no one hearing this went through that. But maybe there are other negative patterns that have shaped you, and the good news is you don't have to perpetuate it. You can be different. God can help us to do things differently. That's what His Spirit is for. We have many examples of God's people who have who have let go of the past and turned a corner and made a change and made a determined effort not to repeat the mistakes of the past. And that's powerful. Let's turn over at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The love chapter. Love is the second great commandment. But we need to first start at home. How often do we apply these things at home? How much are we showing this kind of love at home in our expression of communication to one another? 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. I could do all sorts of superhuman things. I could be making all sorts of efforts, but if there's not love, it's going to fall flat. That's what Paul was saying. I could be super busy and yet not effective. We have to think about that because our lives are super busy. Are we seeing and taking the opportunities we have to show love? Or are we walking by them like the the priest and the Levite and not taking a second look? Verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. You know, as family members, are we learning to suffer long and be kind in our words? Or do we get into patterns of criticism? And it's so easy to happen. It doesn't take much effort at all. We just get into a pattern of it, into a habit of it. Children can get into a pattern of being snippy and and critical and putting down each other. And if we as parents allow that to go on, everyone feels worthless. And who is going to bear their soul in that kind of environment? Who's going to feel like that's a, a safe haven when they come home? And they fought the battles outside, and they come home and they are made to feel worthless. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. You know, how many sibling rivalries are actually stirred up or allowed to happen because of parents? 
because of how we treat them, because of how we give special treatment for, for, for perhaps to one or the other. Or maybe we label, you know, one of, one of our children. Well, he's the troublemaker. Or she's the complainer. Or he's the smart one. You know, oh, that's a great idea. How does everybody else in the room feel? Verse 5, does not behave rudely, does not think its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. You know, one of the things that we must teach our children is to control their reactions, that they are not a puppet on a string, that they actually do have control over their emotions. And just because someone annoys you doesn't mean you punch them in the nose or doesn't mean you react verbally. But what about our behavior? What control are we showing? Are we easily provoked? Verse 6, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Brethren, does that describe our home? Is it a haven of peace? Does 1 Corinthians 13 describe our home. Our job is to, to think about how we react under stress and evaluate it. <clears throat> the writer, again, Ken Burns, goes on in the article, Keeping the Communication Lines Open. He says, people deal with anger in many ways. Some people are not yellers but stuffers. Other people rage and scream. Regardless of how we vent our anger, it's important to deal with it. Remember your important role in setting a good example at home. Your kids will learn most how to deal with their frustrations and anger as they watch you handle your frustrations and anger. It's always best not to discipline or say things to your teen in anger. Just bite your tongue, he says. You don't have to say everything you think, really. Most of our own personal regrets in life come from what we have said to others in anger. We end up saying hurtful things. A woman was talking to me about her teenager who was giving her an especially challenging time, and she asked, how do I deal with the anger issue? I smiled. Your anger or your daughter's anger? She paused a moment, then said, my daughter's, but come to think of it, I'm angry at her much of the time too. How do we respond under stress? And what about in the church? If we have our physical home at home, what about our spiritual home? What about the household of faith? How do we treat one another? Let's turn over to Romans chapter 14 and verse 7. Because the household of faith is also to be a home of peace, a haven of peace, a place where we can come and and worship and gather and fellowship and be refreshed away from the the storms and the, the torrents of life all week long, where we love each other and we treat each other well. But sometimes we have conflict, don't we? Paul was addressing that. 
He was talking about a, a conflict between those who were eating vegetables and those who didn't eat vegetables. Now, of all the stupid things, right? Can you imagine that turning into a conflict? And yet, there it is in black and white. We can turn a lot of things into conflict. Romans chapter 14 and verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, summing up the passage, he says, and no one dies to himself. You know, we're not an island. We're not in this all alone. We affect each other, and we have a responsibility to each other. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Verse 10, why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? Verse 13, therefore let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Verse 19, then he says, therefore let us pursue the things that make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. So whether in the church congregation or in the home, we're here to build positive patterns of communication. And when we do have conflict, that's the test, isn't it? That's the time when our 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 metal is tested. Can we handle conflict in, in a positive, forward-looking way? Or, you know, do we show contempt for one another? Homes... Of, uh, that are a, a haven of peace, show support and, and love and care even in times of stress. Number three, number three, <clears throat> another key to making our home a haven of peace, whether at home or whether in the church, is to work together as a team. Work together as a team. This is vital, vital thing for a family vital thing for us as a congregation, as a church. You know, I have great memories of working with my dad, whether it was him working, fixing something, an engine, or building a deck, or fixing something in the house, and working together in in the garden, or trimming bushes and trees, and it seemed like he would go on forever and and, uh, would never stop. He always had more stamina than we did. And we complained, I admit it. You know, it wasn't fun many times, but when you think back to it, a lot of times working together unexpectedly, it turned into fun. Like when there's a crab apple tree nearby and you grab a few and can launch them against, you know, toward your brother, something like that. There are all kinds of ways to turn work into fun. Even chores can be fun. They can turn into times when families laugh together, when they tease each other, when they throw crab apples at each other, you know, other good fun. We have, uh, we have a place where currently where we have animals, where we have a space for growing things, and I love working outside. We have projects. I love being outside and, and working outside, and especially I have learned the joy of watching your children work outside. That is a beautiful thing. I just derive so much joy from that. It's really fantastic. But, you know, you don't need a farm to work together as a family. 
My mother grew up in the city in Milwaukee. Her father, my grandfather, had a music store. And growing up, everything revolved around the store, and everyone worked and helped at the store. As they got older, they would run the cash register. They would teach music lessons, even as older teens and young adults, uh, helping customers. Everybody helped out. And those who have a, a home business like that, oftentimes the whole family gets involved. But even if we don't have a home business, there are a thousand chores that need to be done in a, in a home, aren't there? There's laundry to be done. There's cooking and cleaning that needs to be done. There's taking out the trash. There's doing the dishes. There's keeping up the home. There's vacuuming. There's so many parts of the house that to keep it working, to keep it running, and everyone working together is vital. And it gives everyone a feeling of being vital. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and uh, verse 18. We, again, usually refer to this in terms of the church, but why not apply it to the home as well? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just jumping into the middle of it. In verse 15, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? You know, if any member of the family feels like they're not a part of the family, that's terrible, isn't it? You know, if you had six people in your family and you you got a, a, a table for five, you know, and every day one of, one of the kids would have to sit off, you know, by them, wouldn't that be awful? I mean, that's unthinkable. Everybody feels, needs to feel like they have a part to play, and working together as a body is critical to feeling that way. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. You know, not just in the church, but also in the home. We, in a family, are thrust together, and it's not our choice, is it? We didn't get to choose who is in that family with us. God has set the members as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? Verse 20, now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again to the head, to the feet, I have no need of you. No, that, that, that's not the way it works. No, much rather, verse 22, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. You know, whenever sometimes one member of the body is, is down, is, is needing to be encouraged, and the rest of the body should, should rally around that member, not put them down further, that doesn't make any sense. He says, verse, uh, verse 24, But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. <clears throat> Everybody works together. And there's so much value in having work, having projects, having chores, having responsibilities where we feel like I'm needed. Our children feel like they're needed. Now, they may not 
appreciate, show appreciation in that way. But deep down inside, someday they will appreciate it. They will understand it. There is an article that came out about a year ago, and it, um, it's an article about a, a um, presentation that a former Stanford dean gave. And uh, the, the dean was explaining how the frenetic helicopter parenting doesn't work how we need to give children responsibility. We can't step in and, and, and you know, uh, super control every aspect of their life. They have to learn to, to solve problems. They have to learn to work. And um, here is what one summation of the, the writer who was attending this lecture. Uh, she says, This week I sat in an auditorium with a couple hundred other parents at my daughter's high school to hear what author and former freshman dean of Stanford University, Julie Lithcott-Hames, had to say about the epidemic of over-parenting, quote-unquote, and the ways that this trend is influencing an entire generation of kids. And then she goes on and, and explains many, many parts of the issue. But finally, to conclude, she says, to conclude the lecture, Julie gave the audience the ultimate takeaway. She said, there are, these are the two best things that each of us can do for our kids to help them become successful adults. What were the two things? Number one, give them chores. Believe it or not, give them chores. Number two, teach them to love. That's it. The, the lady, the writer says, really, it's that simple. And if you're like me, your intuition has known it all along. But here's a little more research to back it up. The longitudinal Harvard grant study, one of the longest studies of humans ever conducted, found that success in life comes from having done chores as a kid. Now again, all you young people, I'm really sorry for bringing this out today. Your parents are going to go crazy now with the chores. The earlier the kids started, the better. When our kids are too busy to do chores, we eliminate the biggest factor for success. If we have them so busy doing other things that they're not working to help the, the, the body of the family, we're actually shortcutting them. We're actually hampering their ability to be prepared to be a responsible adult. The Harvard Grant study also found that happiness in life equals love. Not passion, love. Love of people and love of human experience. If there's anything that we can do for our kids, it's to teach them compassion, work ethic, and the love that can be found at home. This is a Harvard study. This is a, the, a dean of Stanford these are people who, who aren't connected to the truth at all, and yet they have stumbled upon this truth that works. Brethren, isn't that what we're doing in the church as well? That God has not called us just for ourselves, but to be a part of a working body. Ephesians chapter 4. We're a part of the, the big work. We're a part of the work of taking the gospel of the kingdom to the whole world, but we're also a part of a functioning body that has congregations, that has 
local bodies. It has units that we work within. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. It says, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. In other words, there's a reason why there's a head and there's a reason why there are parts, that we all go in the same direction. We're not all flying off in different directions. And, of course, the ultimate head is, is Jesus Christ. And then he says, but speaking the truth in love, verse 15, may grow up in all things into him. You know, he is the head. He is the standard. He is what we're striving to be, who we're striving to be like. And it's through his power, not our own. The head is Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. We're all in the same boat together. We're all paddling. We have to make sure we're paddling in the same direction, don't we? Otherwise, we get in each other's way. You know, sometimes, sometimes occasionally you'll find someone who who doesn't really want to be part of one congregation. They just want to float from one place to the other. And they're surprised when we say that, no, you, you need to be a part of a congregation. You need to decide where is your home congregation and, and be there most of the time. Well, why is that? You know, if we float from one to another each week, no, nobody knows when to expect us there. Um, what happens if we just sort of float? Well, then we're not a part of any real congregation. We're not missed when we're not there. And then we wonder, well, why didn't anyone call me? Well, they didn't expect you. You're not a part of a real viable body. You're not expected every week. We don't have other brethren looking out for us. We don't become part of a functioning body that has different Service projects that he is even helping each other every week. That's why we need to be a part of a local congregation. And isn't it exciting that, that in, in our local congregations we have so many different functions and it's, it's wonderful to see it work. Everyone working together. We get a lot of feeling of belonging and support and encouragement when we have a home, when we have a place that where we belong and we're contributing and we're a part of it. Let's look at the last thing, last key we'll talk about today, and that is promote a godly culture. How do we make our home a haven of peace, whether it's in our physical home or whether it's in the church, our, our local congregation that we're a vital part of, that we are an integral part of, that we're an active part of, where people expect us to be, and, and if we're not there, then they miss us. Imagine, what a novelty, that people will actually miss us 
Isn't that a good feeling when you're, you're not there and somebody says, hey, we missed you at Sabbath services. You know, it wouldn't, wouldn't be that way if we weren't a part of a congregation. But number four, promote a godly culture. What do we need to do to promote a godly culture? Well, we all have a culture in our home, in the church, you know, in any group that we interact with. Let's turn back to Philippians chapter 2. But what is the culture of your home? We all are in the process of creating a culture in our home, the way we do things, the traditions, the mindsets. The goal is to create a home, a culture home of, of our home that is filled with peace and filled with care for one another and filled with love for one another. Philippians 2, let's go there again. We read the first part of it before. We talked about having love and, and comfort and affection and mercy, being like-minded, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. In lowliness of mind, let each esteeming others better than himself. Look on the interests of others, not just ourselves. And finally, it says in verse 5, it gives the key to how this happens. How do we work together? How do we not just uh, all run off in different directions? How do we understand where we're really going Who gives the ultimate direction to the family? Not even the parents. But God, Jesus Christ. Verse 5, notice, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. You know, a home should be a place of of love and affection and mercy. But it only works if Christ is at the center, if God is at the center. Because if it's not that way, it's going to be our ideas and our opinions. And at the end of the day, that's not going to be enough. It's not our vision that has to be cast. It's God's vision. It's Christ's vision of what our family should be like. And you know, even when our children are small, they can start to, to see that. When they're very small, we, we are like God to them. They, they can't comprehend anything beyond how we are feeding them and, and changing them and cleaning them up. And they look to us as a sort of a God figure. But even when they're small, at some point we, we start talking about God to them, don't we? We start telling them, you know, I'm, I'm daddy, but there's a big daddy who lives in heaven. And he created you. And he gave us this food we're eating. And he's the one that protects us. And he's the one who gave us the Feast of Tabernacles. And he's the one who gives us money to buy things and buy nice things for you. And they begin to comprehend that there is a higher power that mommy and daddy answer to. And that must really be a higher power, you know, because mommy and daddy are the boss. And this is amazing when it dawns on them. But how powerful is that? That it's not just our ideas that are creating the vision. God is laying out his vision. And even in their 
their minds, even at a, a small and tender age, they began to see that. What is his vision for our family? Let's turn over to Malachi chapter 2. What's his vision for your family and mine? What, why does he want peace in the home between husbands and wives? Malachi chapter 2 and verse, verse 13. He was addressing some problems that were going on here. He says, the second thing you do, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Verse 14, because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? Here it is. What's the vision? What's the focus? Why are we here? Why do we have families? Why did God create the process of children coming along because he seeks godly offspring. God wants our children to be like him. He's reproducing himself. And what an amazing thing that we have a small part to play in that process. That we are a part of the mechanism that he is reproducing himself. And he's given us a a little bit of responsibility But he says, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of of his youth. So what's the goal in our homes that that our children would grow and, and not just grow, but grow to be like God, to love God, to see God as their father, to have a relationship with him and understand him. He sets the vision. I really appreciate Dr. Jeff Fall's booklet, uh, Successful Parenting God's Way. Because he talks about this. If you haven't read this or haven't read it in a while, get a copy and, and read it again. It's, it's really fascinating. He talks about a godly culture. You know, not sanctimonious, not walking around in hushed tones, not, not studying the Bible every second of the day, not looking very humble every, you know, every moment of the day, but, but rather letting everything we do be guided by what God says. That's a godly culture. He says on page 37, All too often, parents tend to compartmentalize God in their family life. We view the Christian walk as composed of certain Christ-like behavior patterns, church services, and perhaps occasional family Bible studies. In truth, this is a good start, but there's far more to create in a culture of God within our homes. What does this mean? Simply that every decision we make as parents should revolve around the question, will this increase or decrease? the likelihood that my child will grow up in God's image. Perhaps a father is considering a second part-time job which would help the family afford a vacation cabin. Certainly the family would value the cabin, but the second job would cause him to spend much less time with his children. So what would more likely turn the children toward God when they're older? The pleasure of a cabin in the woods or the presence of a devoted father spending more time each day with his children? He puts it in a, a practical example. You know, every decision we make has to be based on a vision. Where are we going? And this is the type of questioning we have to ask ourselves as each situation comes up. He goes on in this chapter, 
to explain that there are principles of setting a godly culture. He says, number one, go to the source of true godly culture, God himself. You know, we can guess all we want. We can have our opinions all we want. But God explains it right here in the book. It answers those questions. Number two, be willing to put your children ahead of yourself. You know, as in the example of the cabin. The father had a certain dream, had a certain desire, you know, to have the cabin in the woods, but but it wasn't going to really be helpful to the children's ultimate spiritual destiny. So he was willing to let go of that for the sake of the children. Number three, make a godly mindset the chief influence on your home, on your children. And here he talks about how, how the mother being at home Staying at home, if at all possible, is so important to that. And, of course, there are times when there are extenuating circumstances that that it's not possible, that it's unavoidable. But if at all possible, you know, a mother being at home and nurturing that environment, well worth any monetary sacrifice of not having a second income. And as he brings out, oftentimes the, when a mother quits an outside job, the finances are not as bad as one might think when you factor in all the expenses that are related to working in, in that outside job. Number four, he says, cultivate the concept that we are different from the world. Not better. Please understand that and hear that carefully. Not better. But we must instill in our children the value of coming out of the world. That this is Satan's world. And we are commanded to not be a part of it spiritually. The world is is filled with lies and deceptions and corruption and deceit. We need to help our children to see the value of being different from the world. Number five, guard children's minds from the influence of the ungodly. What are the avenues that our our children are being influenced in ungodly ways? Well, uh, friends who have different priorities. We need to know who their friends are. And that even influences where we live, you know, a neighborhood we might move to. What are the movies they watch? What are the books they read? What's the music they listen to? We need to talk to them. We need to engage them. We need to look at the lyrics. And talk about if they are consistent with God's values. We have to evaluate electronic tech. Now, I don't care how many happy family members the advertisements show for the latest tech. And I'm not going to give a brand, you know. uh, It doesn't matter. Unless we manage those devices, they do not unite families. They are being seen to separate families. Doesn't matter how many happy, smiling people are in the advertisements getting the latest. And sometimes enforcing rules of, of no internet time, no Wi Fi time, and give them fun alternatives, creating other interaction. You know, there are all kinds of things that people used to do back in the olden days, like playing cards, you know, board games doing puzzles, going for a drive, just talking. Jim Burns, again, says this about having fun together as a family. 
He says, Milton Berle, the great comedian of another period, said, laughter is an instant vacation. Laughter in our family is so important, so much more important than, a, than an expensive vacation in that sense. Long before that, King Solomon shared these wise words, a cheerful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit saps a person's strength. Proverbs 17.22, New Living Translation. So much of poor communication with families has little to do with communication technique and much to do with our busy lifestyles and stress. One of the most effective ways to ruthlessly eliminate stress in a family is to have fun together. Fun and playfulness heals broken relationships and opens up closed spirits. When a family laughs and plays together, it is emotionally nourishing. How is your family's laughter quotient? As kids become teenagers, families have to become even more intentional about having fun together. Play deprivation in families can easily shut down togetherness and communication, instead bringing hostility and negativity. Play and laughter are a release. Nothing turns off a teenager quicker than adults who have lost their sense of humor. Teen expert Wayne Rice says, if laughter comes easily for your family, getting through the tough times will come a lot easier too. So not just harping on our kids for being on their phones, but but looking at ourselves and creating alternatives and introducing laughter. They might roll their eyes at first, but you know what? They're going to have fun in spite of themselves. So in our church home, our congregation, aren't we doing the same thing that we are striving? We have activities. Why do we have activities? Because we all love chess? Or we all love basketball? Or we all love golf or tennis or backgammon or tiddlywinks, whatever? You know what tiddlywinks are? No, we have activities because they bind us together as a family. Frankly, the, the, the content of the activity is, is almost irrelevant. It's being together. It's being together. That's the priority. Let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll conclude there. You know, so many people, even, even in, the, in the world, even the those who have no relationship to the Bible, they want happiness in their family and in their marriage and their children. There was a a survey in 2002 uh, where they asked how to define a successful life. Nearly one-third of all adults, 32%, said that their life would be a success if they were able to have a strong family unit, a solid and lasting marriage, or if they had done a good job of raising their children. What is a measure of of success? What we're doing at home. What we're doing at home. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Why did God say that? Why did Paul say that? Because it's going to be... Horrible for you? 
because it's going to be awful for you. It's going to make your life miserable. No. He said, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But what's the other side of the coin? Verse 4, and you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. A focus on training and teaching and building and setting patterns of communication that are positive and uplifting and edifying. And bring peace and love and security and acceptance. You know, brethren, in both our homes and in the church, if Christ is living in us, we can express the love we need to have. We can do it. Even if it's difficult to start new patterns, we can do it. He will do it in us and through us. Sometimes we don't think we can because we're human and we make mistakes. And we have passed by that poor fellow before and we didn't do anything. But we can learn from that. We don't have to be the Levite and the priest forever. We can learn from that. And we can learn from God's word. We can learn from our experience from one another. And in every way we can, we can endeavor to make our home, at home and in the church, a haven of peace.